we have probably all heard stories of, of people who were saved from, from tragedy by just remarkably strange or coincidental circumstances. Like, I, I didn't look any of these up, but I remember in 9-11 hearing, after 9-11, hearing all the stories of like a woman who always drove to the, the subway station and caught the train. And, and that morning, for whatever reason, she hadn't had any car trouble, you know, forever. And her battery was dead. And then the, uh, you know, by the time she could get a, a jump, she missed the train. And she just didn't make it to work in time. You know, her office was on the whatever top floor of the world trade. And she was saved because something killed her battery that morning. Another a famous story like that is on the day the music died, if you know that line from that song, when, when Buddy Holly was in the plane that crashed and, and uh, Richie Valens was in there and the, the a rock and roll singer named the Big Bopper was in there. Well, Waylon Jennings was a part of Buddy Holly's band back then and he had a seat on that plane. Someone else in a different band was sick, and so Waylon gave up his seat so that that sick guy wouldn't have to drive all the way across country, and the entire course of history was changed because who else was going to write and sing the Dukes of Hazard theme song <laughs> if Waylon Jennings died that day? I, I, I just want you to consider how many mamas would have let their babies grow up to be cowboys if Waylon wasn't spared on that day. We can share lots of serious stories about that, maybe some even from your life. And it's comforting to think of God's providence working that way. That God intervened to kill that woman's battery to spare her from being in that building. It feels good to think that way. But if God was there in that way for that woman, for Waylon Jennings to keep him off Buddy Holly's plane, where was he for everybody else? I mean, if, if God's powerful enough to kill a car battery, are airliner jumbo jet batteries out of his control? I mean, if he could keep her car from starting, is he not big enough or strong enough to keep the, those airliners on the ground? That's what we want to talk about this morning. This morning, we're only going to read one verse from the book of 2 Samuel. The entire scripture reading is printed on the cover of the bulletin. Uh, my plan was to finish the books of Samuel this morning and move on. But as I, and I did the study for the whole chapter, but I, as I kept chewing on verse 1, I, I just didn't have any peace about going past it. So we're going to camp just on this verse today, and I... I just think this is so important. This, and I mean this in all seriousness, this verse and the way we can train ourselves to think about this verse 
For some of us in here, it might be the most important bit of scripture and thing you can learn this entire year. Let's read it and see why I decided to camp on this verse, maybe. 2 Samuel chapter 24, only verse 1 reads this way. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them to say, go and number Israel and Judah. That's it. That's all we're going to cover. The first thing we're told in that verse is that God was really super angry at Israel. So the first thing I'd like to do this morning is explain to you why God was so angry at Israel. I would like to, but I can't because he doesn't tell us. I will tell you, I'm sure he had plenty of options because at this point in history, Israel lived in a covenant with God. They had two copies of that covenant locked away in a special chest called the Ark of the Covenant. And the covenant they lived in kind of worked like this. God said, here's the terms of the covenant. You keep this covenant, I'll bless you. You break this covenant, I'll curse you. So in some sense, the wonder is not that as we read the rest of this chapter, and next week we will, and God pours out some wrath on the nation of Israel, the wonder really isn't, man, I can't believe God got so angry that one time and killed all those people. The wonder is, I can't believe he didn't do it more. But the first troubling thing we run into in this verse is we're told God's super angry and he doesn't tell us why. But that's not the most troubling part. Not even close, actually. Because next week, as we read the rest of this this passage, we're going to read as as David numbers Israel. He, He has a census taken of all the fighting age men in Israel. And it's going to be very clear that that was a sinful thing to do. It was wrong. And so... What this verse says is God got super angry at Israel and God incited David to do something that God thought was wrong. And then as we go forward, we're going to see that God is going to punish Israel for the thing David did that God incited David to do. How's that make you feel? Does it bother you that that is in your Bible? It's okay if it does. It's a troubling verse. The first thing we can do to try and deal with this, again, God incited David to do something wrong and then punished Israel for the wrong thing David did that God made at the very least more likely, if not inevitable. The first thing we can do with that troubling verse is find something else in the Bible that will help us sort of scrub this away. One place we could go is in 1 Chronicles. Um, 
First Chronicles is another history book that parallels the same history that we've been reading in 2 Samuel. And if you go to this story in 1 Chronicles, we read this. 1 Chronicles 21.1 says, Then Satan stood up against Israel, and Satan moved David to number Israel. So if that's all we had, we could go, well, whew, thank goodness that's in there. You see, it wasn't God that did this. It was that darn dirty devil that tempted David. So maybe what we should do is just kind of ignore this verse, read this verse, say the author of, of, uh, of 2 Samuel just got it, got it wrong. And I'll tell you, that wouldn't help us a bit. For a couple of reasons. One, we still have to explain what 2 Samuel 24.1 is doing in our Bibles. The second, and probably more importantly, is the Bible is really clear that though Satan is a real being, um, he, is, he can only do what he is allowed to do by the sovereign God of the universe. You see this most plainly in the book of Job. Where, uh, you know, Satan just wants to kill and steal and destroy, but he only gets to do so when God says he can do so. Martin Luther said this concept this way. He said, even the devil is God's devil. In fact, the way we harmonize these two verses, I don't see a contrast in these two verses or a conflict in these two verses at all. But Pastor Matt, one says that God incited David, and the other one says Satan uh, tempted David. And the answer is, yes, both. Yes, they're both true. One, from a theological perspective, God decided David was going to be incited to do something wrong. And then practically speaking, God used Satan to do the tempting. Now, there are, other, there are other things we could throw at this, other Bible verses to try to scrub this away. Another one comes in the, from the book of James. In the book of James, we read this, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But I'm pretty sure 2 Samuel 24 says that God incited David to do something wrong. So what do we do with these two things? Okay. First, what James is saying in James chapter 1 is not, James would never say God is not involved when someone gets tempted. God is not involved in any way. He was powerless to stop it. In fact, if we, if we add one more verse to the context there... James 1.12 says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love, them, love him. Then verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted by evil, and God doesn't tempt anyone. Here's what James is saying. First, James is not saying God doesn't do this word ever. You know how I know that? Usually what we, when we hear this taught, here's what we're taught. God just allows people, not that God doesn't tempt people, but God allows what in people's lives? He doesn't tempt people, but he allows trials. Or he allows to, 
tests, which is true. But this word right here for, uh, for trial is the same exact word as this word for tempt in the Greek. There's only one word. When it's used about God, our translators translate it trial. When it's used about the enemy, the word is tempt. But it's the same word. And also, like I just said, God, God allows the enemy to do what the enemy can do. So here's what James is saying here in James 1. Here's what James doesn't want us to do. Because James is aware of the sovereignty of God. But he says, when we find ourselves being tempted, here's what we can't do. Well, if God didn't want me to do, insert your sin here, if God didn't want me to do that, he shouldn't have let it be right here in front of my face. We can't blame God for our failures. That's what James is saying. And it is helpful to think this way about our temptations. God does not tempt us in that. God doesn't want to give an opportunity to destroy us. That's what the enemy does want. He wants us destroyed, ruined. God gives us opportunities to prove to ourselves and to him and to others that my faith is more valuable than gold, as Peter would say it, and to be victorious, right? And to uh, share the joy that, that comes in that God does give us those opportunities. But the reality is, if God is sovereign, when I face temptation, God has allowed that at the very least, right? However we want to approach this troubling verse, whatever other verses or concepts we want to throw out, we have to let it say what it says. And we have to deal with this. I just wrote it out just so we're clear. In this verse, God set events in motion, including, I believe, turning the devil loose to go after David. But those events God set in motion made David's sin more likely, and then God punished Israel for the sin David sinned. We better wrestle with this. And I don't mean we better wrestle with this just so you can explain it or make sense of it. It's way bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. Like I said a minute ago, this, this really, this year, this might be, if you, we can learn to think correctly about this situation, it might be the most important thing you learn this year. Because God hasn't changed since this was written. God is the same today as he was then. God has not mellowed in his old age. And in this verse, what God sets in motion, we'll see it next week, God made David's bad decision, at the very least, more likely, when David made that bad decision, God's going to kill 70,000 men. God did that. 
and it's confusing and it's painful and he didn't have to do it. He could have decided to do something else. But here's why this day, this is so important for us because for someone in here, one of us is going to be next to go through something that is incredibly painful for which we cannot find an answer. And for which we will know, God, you could have done something different. And you didn't. And it will not be hypothetical. It will not be trying to wrap my head around a troubling verse. It will be my life. So can we figure out how to think about this today? Can we make some decisions in our minds, in our hearts today? that might help us hang on in that day? I think we can. And I think we better. So how do we think through this? Because, I mean, I don't want to scrub all our questions out of this verse because the Bible doesn't. Not only do I not think we can just answer all the questions about this, I don't even think we should. Because this is how life works sometimes. Stuff happens that really hurts. And there's no good explanation. And what do we do then? How do we think about that? All right. So the rest of this is just going to be some thoughts on how to think about the unthinkable. First thing we need to decide and set our hearts on this morning about situations like this, and this sounds harsh, but it is true, God does not owe us an explanation. It's not wrong to want one. I want one about this verse, about this chapter. I want to know, God, why are you so angry at Israel? He doesn't tell us. I want to know what's so wrong about taking a census anyway. After all, God, we could turn someplace else and you told Israel to take a census. Why is this one so wrong? I want to know how it can be morally right for God to make something at least more likely, if not inevitable, and then punish Israel for the thing he put in motion. I want an explanation but God does not owe me one. The psalmist says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, or the fullness thereof. That, is, that was a life-changing memory verse for me and Rachel. Because you know what that means? That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it means if all this place is his, he can do whatever he wants with it and he's not wrong because it's his. When something unthinkable for us happens, and I mean painful, awful, terrible, it can feel like God is invading our house and doing stuff we don't like. But you know what? But this ain't our house. This is God's house. I mean, the whole universe. You know, if somebody breaks into your house, if you go home after church and someone's inside your house, you have every right to, to require an explanation of what they're doing there. 
You know why? Because it's your house. You don't owe me an explanation of what you do in your house. Right? You tell me, buzz off, it's my house. This place is God's. Every one of us, God's. He can do what he wants. Now listen, that sounds harsh and like, well, God is uncaring and unloving and, un, and, and whatever, but here's why that's, it's important to get through our minds. He does not owe me an explanation because when the painful thing happens, when the thing we don't understand begins, whether we're reading it in here or living through it, we can start to think, man, if I don't get some answers, I, somebody better help me understand this. And the second thing we need to get through our head comes up. If we distance ourselves from God when we don't understand, we hurt ourselves. If we distance ourselves from God when we don't understand, we hurt ourselves. It's very tempting and easy to read something about you know, God ordering the annihilation of a people group or God doing what he uh, did today in this passage and think, man, I'm not sure I can believe in a God like that. Who loses in that scenario? It ain't God, right? God is never up in heaven going, oh man, oh Barney down there is threatening to stop believing in me unless I behave myself. God is going to be just fine without Barney. The same is not true for Barney in the reverse of that scenario, right? I cannot require the God of the universe to be on my side if I'm going to stick with him. The most important thing in my life, though, is to make sure I am on God's side. And God told us who he is in this book. We don't know everything. But we know what we can know about God from this book. And we better figure out who he told us he is and what he's like and then figure out how we reconcile ourselves to him I want to reiterate how important it is to think through this because this is not an isolated incident in the scriptures, if you think about this. We found one place today where God does something that we find unpalatable, right? Anybody, when we, anybody have today's verse like hanging up in your house someplace? Is that your life verse that makes you feel great? No, no, but this isn't an isolated incident. You want to start making the list of the times God did something that people hated in the Bible <laughs> or things that people didn't understand? It's on every page. You know why? Because that's the way life in a fallen world works. Read Ezekiel where God said, hey, I want you to go out where everybody hates you, like uh, lay on your left side for a long time and everybody's going to call you names. Then you can lay on your right side and everybody's still going to call you names. And then you tell them what I said and they're all going to thumb their nose at you and no one's going to believe a word you say. Get out there, tiger. Prophet Jeremiah had the same sort of ministry. Daniel. Don't get me started on Hosea. 
There's kids here. I don't even want to tell you that story. Job. But maybe this is just an Old Testament thing. Au contraire. During the life of Jesus, uh, in John chapter 6, one time Jesus started teaching stuff that everyone hated. And I mean everyone. Okay, this is early in his ministry still. There is no like symbolism of the Last Supper. And just picture yourself hearing this for the first time. Jesus preaching to a big crowd and he dives in and he says, I tell you the solemn truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who consumes me will live because of me. And he gets done and the disciples are like, you know, can you try that one again? Can we go like take two on that? uh, Maybe you had a fig stuck in your throat there, Lord, because... That was bonkers. And Jesus says to them, and I quote, Has what I, did what I say offend you? And then he doesn't back down at all. And then people start leaving in droves. The disciples are like, you know, but that just doesn't sound very Christ-like or loving. Jesus also said at this, in this very same conversation, some of y'all out here aren't going to believe and you're going to be cast away on the last day. The disciples are like, will you stop it? The end of this conversation, after this, many of his disciples quit following him. And didn't accompany him any longer. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. After this conversation, Jesus gets the boys, a lot of people just walk like, man, if that's what Jesus is like, I'm not following him anymore. And they go home and Jesus gets the, gets the boys together and says, you don't want to go away too, do you? And do you hear what Peter says in, the, in, in, in my own uh, translation of the New Testament? Uh, it's a paraphrase. It's called the DMV, the dumb Maxwell version. The, what Peter says here, do you hear it? Jesus says, you don't want to go away too, do you? And you know what the disciples say? I mean, kind of. Peter says, where, to whom would we go? Do you hear what he's saying there? Like, I wish we had another option. This is the answer. This is the answer when life comes for you, man. I mean, when things hurt, when you can't possibly understand, God, I don't know what you are doing. Listen to the Lord say, you don't want to leave me, do you? You say, where else would I go? I can't leave you. I know you're my only hope. But just like the disciples, it's okay to admit, I just wish you would act differently sometimes. Sometimes that's the best we have. Just be honest.
I think every single Christian gets there because we're all confronted with these things we wish God wouldn't do. Right? We better, but you hear what's so good about what Peter says is he doesn't say, you know what? I think I do want to go someplace else. I'll go find a God who treats me better. Right? I'll go, I'll go find some other religion that seems a little more loving. Because Peter, Peter at least understands, I don't like this and I don't understand, but there's nowhere else I can go because I know who you are. Now we're going to see next week in the rest of this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 24, God does have a plan in what he's doing. Shocker. He, he is directing, he does cause David to make a terrible decision, but God has something he wants to do that'll be the bestest for the mostest. We'll see that, but I, again, I don't want to answer all your questions about this because I don't think the text does, and I don't think we should because when last thing we need to, not the last thing, but the next thing we need to decide we're going to think is that there are mysteries with God. We have to leave room for there being some mystery to this Christianity thing we're in. God's a big subject, right? You're not going to master it. In fact, this is just me personally. Uh, you know, the people on Twitter or social media or wherever else, the ones that drive me the most nuts are the people who act like they've got this whole thing nailed and they have every question answered. Like, oh, really? We have to understand God doesn't owe me an explanation, but I have to cling to him because he's my only hope. And I have to leave room. To, it's okay that I don't understand. Like, we're, we're talking about God. <laughs> Do you really think, I mean, if you think about it this way, am I really going to understand the infinite God? And all that is why, here's why I called this the big question. Because when, when life comes for us and it's really terrible and it really hurts, here is the big question. The big question in those times is not, do I understand God, but do I trust the God I don't understand? It's, the question is not, do I understand, but do I trust God? Because we're not going to understand he's God. We are, we're told a lot about God in here, and we better stick to the fundamentals of what we know about God, right? Otherwise, we'll just invent a God that we like. He will strangely wind up being, if I think about it, a lot like me, right? But I'm convinced we don't even have the first step of knowing everything about God. Even in this entire book, we know a lot. 
But I think we're going to be blown away when we, when we meet him. And we're going to spend the rest of all of eternity exploring all of the wonderful things about God and never learn it all. Can I trust him when I don't understand? Dr. Joshua Paxton is a professor at Calvary University in Kansas City. And I just heard him recently in a little show thing I watched. He, he gave this illustration. It's a true story. His son was four years old and he had some sort of health problems. I don't remember what it was, but he was, found himself in the emergency room with his four-year-old son. And they decided pretty quickly he needed some medical intervention. I know it, in, it in, involved an IV and some other stuff. doesn't really matter. But that little four-year-old guy saw the needles and stuff and freaked. So here's Dr. Paxton trying to hold his son down and couldn't. So they brought this big hulking orderly in. And, and this guy is, is really holding this guy down. And Dr. Paxton says, and I hear my four-year-old son start yelling things like, Daddy, help me! Daddy, why are you helping them? Why won't you help me? Because see, a four-year-old had no way to fathom that what his daddy was doing was actually helping him. It was love. Four-year-olds are way closer to understanding medical science than you are to understanding God. That's why sometimes the best we can do is just say, I don't get it. I wish it wasn't like this, but I trust you. When we can get these thoughts through our heads, when we can decide to think these things, he doesn't owe me an explanation. He's not wrong. Uh, I, I, can, I can trust him. I can hang on. I'm not going to allow this to put distance between me and him because I trust him when I don't understand. When that can be our thought process is a a fascinating thing can happen when we come to a passage like this in the Bible that's kind of unpalatable or when life becomes unpalatable instead of what we used to do, which is, it is horrible that God could be behind something like this. Be honest, how many of you thought something like that when we read this verse first? It'd be horrible if that's true about God. Be terrible if God is behind something like this. So we've got to figure out how to make it seem like God's not behind the terrible thing that is happening. Like it was out of his control. God's not that small. But a wonderful thing starts to happen instead of, it'd be horrible if God was behind something like this. It can turn into, God, I'm so glad that you are the one behind this. Because if this was just chaos and this, if this was completely out of your control, then I would lose hope. But I know I will be okay because you are behind this. And then I want to make you a promise before we quit. I'm going to use Paul as an example. Just like in today's passage, like God put Israel through some stuff in the history of Israel, didn't he? Um, stuff Israel couldn't possibly understand. 
slavery and deportations and defeats, and it was just horrible half the time. But Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, he like stood on this side of the cross and he looked back over Israel's history and all that stuff God put Israel through. And Paul could begin to see, oh my goodness, he was pushing history toward the cross. Look at this plan he had. And then Paul just erupts in this praise. And he says, oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How fathomless are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who had first given to God that God needs to repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul said is he looked back over everything in the history of Israel and goes, Holy smokes, look what he was doing. That whole, it was awesome, the whole thing. Listen, you will have that same experience if you trust God through Jesus Christ right now. Hang on to him. Someday you will be with him. You will look back over your life and go, look what he was doing. Who could have possibly be smart enough to come up with a plan like that. I had no idea. Just like Joshua Paxton's son had no idea his daddy was being good to him when he was scared and when it hurt. Those of us who trust him now will get that experience later. But the folks who have to have all their questions answered before they'll believe, the folks who decide, well, if that's the way God's going to be, then I'm going to try something else. They are the ones that Jesus will say, some of you will not believe and you will be cast away on the last day. You wouldn't trust me, so I'm just giving you what you wanted. This world's tough and hard and painful and lousy, but there is a good God in control of it. Can you trust him even when you don't understand him? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you gave that name to yourself for us. Sometimes we just have to remind ourselves what we're allowed to call you. Daddy, Sometimes we're so much like Dr. Paxton's little boy where all we can do is, Daddy, why are you doing this? Why won't you help me? Thank you that we can trust you even when we don't understand. We just have to trust that even though we can't fathom your reasons, you have them. Build and grow our trust in the God we can love, but we can't always understand. We do love you. Grow our faith. We have nowhere else to turn. Thank you for being our hope and our help and our daddy. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up and let's finish our time.